please take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And we'll probably read verses 1 through 5 so we can be reminded of the context here, uh, which is very important. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 is one of the most important verses, not just in Timothy, but dare I say in all of Scripture. And that's where we're landing today. We slowed down a little bit because each of these verses, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, we're taking a, uh, a day out of each one of them, but actually we're looking all throughout the Scripture, you know? So we're studying a lot of Scripture, so we don't just look at one verse. We look at, you know, if you... My messages use a ton of Scriptures because we want you to learn the Word of God, but because 2.4, 2.5, and 2.6 are just... All three of those verses are just pregnant and vibrant with God's truth. So in chapter 2, after Paul talked about how, you know, he was the chief of sinners and God saved him to show that he would save anybody who would come to Christ. And, and he came against uh, the false teachings that were uh, threatening the gospel there. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of who? All men. Amen. He wants us to pray for everyone. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he's, he, and I've emphasized to you that he didn't just say pray for everybody, verse 1, but he specifically talks about a subset or some subsets of everybody because these are people that we might be tempted to neglect praying for when praying for them is very, very critical to the furtherance of the gospel in regard to uh, there being some tranquility. And I've mentioned to you that many people pray for persecution for America, persecuted lands. We hear that the Chinese are praying that we'd be persecuted and other persecuted people are being praying that we get persecuted so that we'd wake up and, and we'd share the gospel more and so forth, you know. And I say that sounds good and there's some truth to that because I can show you in the book of Acts and in early church history that God used persecution to, to get the gospel to spread. But at the same time here, he's not saying pray that you guys get persecuted more so the gospel can spread more. He's saying pray for these leaders so they will govern in such a way where you have peace so you can actually get out and share the gospel without hindrance. Isn't that interesting? And it's funny how we have these certain things and cliches we use in the body of Christ uh, and we think, wow, this is a... Yeah, persecution, yeah, the further gospel. And there's some truth to that, but there's also truth to the reality that when you get too much persecution in some areas, like for instance, Saudi Arabia, the gospel doesn't spread much at all. You understand? So what I like to pray is for God's will to be done. And I like to pray exactly what the scriptures tell me to pray for. So, and I've told you before, this is one of my weaknesses through the years of my Christian walk. As I'll pray a lot, I'll pray for everybody, but I would not pray often enough by any stretch of the imagination, for governing leaders uh, that persecute the church. And I'd pray for them, but I'm saying not enough. That would be something that I would neglect. That would be some, that's something I'd have to remind myself of. Oh, man, i got to pray for the leaders. i got to pray for Bill Clinton and Hillary. i got to pray for Obama. i got to pray for Biden. i got to pray for Trump. i got to pray, you know. And some of these people are easier to pray for than others, you know but it's an important part of our prayer life because the Lord wants uh, us to be praying for them and prayer matters. And last time we were together, we looked at the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and we did a whole thing on prayer and how important it is. Even though last time I was talking to you guys, we weren't really on this text in prayer, but it's important. Uh, and Paul's writing this 
when who is the king? Who's the emperor of Rome? Nero, Nero one of the wickedest men who ever lived. I'm not going to go through his history, but that's a heavy thing to ask for prayer for. So you say, yeah, but Joe, it's really hard to pray for this guy. Oh, if you were in Paul's day, it'd be a lot harder to pray for Nero. Okay, he was torching Christians saying, you want to be the light of the world? Hey, burn in my garden. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men, including kings like Nero, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we've just gone through four verses, but he truly desires that all men would be saved. And man, Anthropos there is speaking of humanity, male and female, made he them in his image. Uh, he wants everyone to be saved. And we looked at last time we were actually in 2-4, how some want that to not mean everyone. They don't want to believe that Jesus died for other people. They want to believe Jesus just died for them, a special elect group, because they want to feel so special. And uh, that's kind of sick, I think. The Bible says God is not partial. Amen? And he wills that all be saved, comes to knowledge of the truth. He has no pleasure in death of the wicked, but rather that they turn, turn to you. Why will you, you perish, you know? Has, he wills that all would come, not, that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. On and on and on and on. You know those scriptures, right? I quote them a lot. And I quote them a lot because those are the scriptures I believe are very attacked in our day. So the Lord's heart, and I think this is critical, that you rest and you have peace in understanding God's heart toward you. One of the things I've counseled most people over through the years and it's a lot of times people outside our fellowship, not typically people in our fellowship, but people that have come to our fellowship sometime from a Calvinistic background, believing that God doesn't want them. God didn't save them. They're not one of the elect, you know? And I've shared with new people, a sister and a brother that just got saved recently in our fellowship that were just visiting a few months back, you know? And uh, I expressed the love of God to them, and, and they're both in tears. And the one brother that was coming to Christ, he, he had a hard time believing that Jesus really would save him. And I could so relate because when I first became a Christian, I thought, how could God save me? So that's something that we struggle with because if you realize what a sinner, sinner you are and you humble yourself before him, you're not going to feel like God's going to save you until you understand the gospel. Amen. So Paul's emphasizing this for a reason. I try to get you to understand how important this is. And this is why before you get to him saying, pray for everyone. Before you get to him saying God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Before you get to him saying that he gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6. Before you get to all that, he's already stated that God saved him, the worst of all sinners, so you could know if you come to him, he'll save you too. Amen? Amen. This is one of the most beautiful portions of all of scripture. I love it. It's amazing. And now it's interesting because in 2.5, which we're studying today, this evening, for there is one God and one what? Mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One God, he wants to save all, and he's provided a mediator between him and men. Because he talks about this one God and how he dwells in unapproachable light. How could we ever be reconciled to him? Being that we are, have darkness and are outside of Christ and outside of salvation and children of wrath. How could he save us? Well, there's a mediator he's provided. Now it's interesting. Uh, commentators, many commentators, uh, believe that Paul is dealing with incipient Gnosticism, proto-Gnosticism, a form of Gnosticism that wasn't fully you know, developed like you'd read 
in regard to the Valentinians and other Gnostic groups that were prevalent in the second century, not long, too long after Paul wrote this. But there's already some Gnosticism there. And you really appreciate the scriptures. When you understand the background of what's going on, uh, it makes you really understand and I believe appreciate uh, the scriptures more. Uh, when you understand that uh, what the Gnostics believed. Now keep in mind in the first century there was already Gnosticism going around. We know that because Polycarp, the disciple of the Apostle John, contemporary of Paul's who lived you know, a bit longer because Paul was put to death not long after he wrote First and Second Timothy. Polycarp had to, I'm sorry, John the Apostle had to deal with a Gnostic named Serenthus and Polycarp talks about what happened because Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and we have his writings and we have the writings of Irenaeus, his disciple, who specifically talks about this. But not going all into what Gnostics taught because I want to deal with a lot of scripture on Jesus being the one mediator, but understanding that the Gnostics taught that God only wanted an elect few to be saved. Paul's countering ideas like that. Now, is Paul doing this because he's dealing with Gnostics in his very midst or because prophetically God knows what's coming down the pike? I believe it could be either or or both. We don't know for sure because we don't have a specific record beyond First and Second Timothy as to Paul and some of the other letters, by the way, where it seems that Paul is dealing with Gnosticism as well. We know that Paul is dealing with some kind of hybrid or at least dealing with uh, those under the Mosaic law Judaizers that, that misuse the law in chapter one, but there's also some kind of mystical element going on, at least uh, prophetically, you know, because Paul, in the end of First, Corinth, First Timothy, look at chapter six, go to the very end of it, uh, the second to last verse, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called gnosis, from which we get the word Gnosticism. Now it's interesting, that verse alone tells us that there's those going around with what they falsely are calling gnosis, not that it was a technical term used by them in the, at that time, and that's what Paul is dealing with, we can't be absolutely sure about that, but we do know this, Irenaeus, who was the strongest apologist against Gnosticism, to me, he was the most radical of the early church fathers, most wonderful, uh, he wrote against heresies. He was an apostle, or I'm sorry, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and he wrote all about the Gnostics. And he was a, the, uh, my favorite church father. I mean, I rotate between him and Justin Martyr and a couple others, but I, I love him, what he stood for. I mean, he was uh, just this amazing man of God, and he stood against all these Gnostic groups, and he goes into detail as to what they taught, because they were all over the place, and you didn't know who the true Christians were sometimes. Because you had the first church of the Christian Gnostics right next to the Christian churches, and they claimed to be the true Christians, and you, had, you didn't have 2,000 years of church history. They were saying, hey, we're the Christians. But they taught that salvation came through knowledge, through gnosis. And Paul's watching out for that which is falsely called gnosis, he says, tells us to. And Irenaeus, in his Against Heresies, his subtitle was that which is falsely called gnosis interesting in the second century. I think that's interesting because he's taking Paul's term and it seems like he may have understood, yes, maybe, you know, Paul was dealing with Gnosticism. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul says that the Holy Spirit speaks expressly that the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, right? 
And, and these doctrines of demons were on their way. So it seems at least he's speaking of it prophetically uh, and maybe incipient Gnosticism in his midst because he talks about these Gnostics forbidding marriage, which many of them did, because procreation was evil. Because you see Yahweh, who created the universe and the physical universe, he's an evil God. The creator's evil, and therefore the physical universe is evil, and you don't dare bring children to the world because you're trapping them in human bodies. Therefore, matter was considered evil. And it says these doctrines of demons, they'll forbid marriage, right? And they're seducing spirits. That's exactly what happened in the second and third century. And it was the greatest enemy of the church, the Gnostics. And not to eat meats, he goes on to say, or foods that are sanctified through prayer, right? And so forth, and thanksgiving. Well, a lot of Gnostics don't eat meat. That's, the, that's matter. Well, plants are okay. Well, really? Right, doesn't that matter too? You know, it's like the vegetarians, you know, it's like, it's amazing. Well, yeah, well, you don't dare eat an animal, a poor animal. Do you realize when you plant crops, how many animals get killed? How many insects? Insects are people too. Well, they're not people, either animals. In insects are creatures too, you know. And if you're, if you're a vegetarian because you just think it's healthier and stuff, praise God, if that's your conviction, great. But don't put it on people for spiritual reasons because Bible calls it, it that if, if you make sp uh, a spiritual reason behind vegetarianism, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 1 through 4, it's a doctrine of demons. So it seems like Paul is dealing with some, kind of, some forms of Gnosticism, which is really interesting because in a lot of Gnostic soteriology, you wouldn't necessarily pray for the salvation of everybody because you didn't believe God wanted to save everybody. Hence, Paul countering that in the first couple verses. Pray for everyone. Oh, and the Gnostics, they didn't believe that God willed that all would be saved. God just wanted the special elect group who he would give special gnosis and special knowledge of, of, of who he was. And he was a God beyond Yahweh. And therefore, Paul counters that. God wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, and, but guess what? The Gnostics believed that there were many mediators. Christ was one, the Lagos. Sophia was another. There were a series of, for the instance, Valentinians in the second century taught there were 32 emanations off of the ultimate depth that emanated off of him. And many of these were mediators. Well, Paul counters that. Verse 5. Verse 4. Verse 1, he wants to pray for everybody. Verse 4, he wants all to be saved. Verse 5, how many mediators are there? There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Oh, and people don't like that message. The Gnostics didn't like that message. Oh, Christ is just a mediator. No, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And the Neo-Gnostics, New Agers today, they're called Neo-Gnostics. The New Agers, the, the, the religion of so much of Hollywood and the music industry is gnosis, you know. And many of them call Yahweh evil. Isn't that interesting? And the idea that Jesus is the only way is, is mean-spirited. It's such, it's so exclusive. But Paul says, there's what? Verse 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, and the Gnostic says, say salvation again is through gnosis, right? But Paul counters that in verse 6, right? That he, that one mediator, what? Gave himself as a what? Ransom. He gave his life. It took his blood, right? And it wasn't for just the elect. It was for who? Oh, isn't that interesting? Now, it's very interesting to me 
that Augustine, the theological father of the Roman Catholic Church, was a Manichaean Gnostic for nine or ten years. Most scholars for years would say nine years. Now scholarship is, a lot of scholarship is saying it was ten years. That he was, doesn't matter. He was, a, he was a Manichaean Gnostic. Then he claimed to be converted to Christ as a Roman Catholic. And then guess what he brought into the church in his fight with Pelagius? His Gnostic hangover entered into the church. That God only wanted an elect group to be saved. That's what his Manichaeans taught. That ultimately he only wanted to predestine some to salvation. And many would later teach, like the Gnostics, that, well, he didn't die for everyone. And that's what's called Calvinism now, but it has its roots in Gnosticism, which Paul is, con is, Paul is coming against here. And it's really interesting because that is a very popular movement today. When you listen to the radio, you'll hear popular teachers, and it's very popular that Jesus didn't die for everybody, that he doesn't truly will, that all would be saved. And well, even though we're supposed to pray for everybody it's because God loves them in a certain way, but he doesn't love them enough to actually die for them and want them to be truly saved. And, and that's the very thing Paul was coming against. And if it was just this distant disconnect between Gnosticism and Calvinism, I wouldn't even bring it up. But that Augustine in the fourth and fifth century, latter fourth, early fifth century was teaching these kinds of doctrines that he brought from Gnosticism a Christian form of Gnosticism, and that John Calvin said that he basically, and John Calvin rejected a lot of what the early church fathers said the first three centuries, and just went back mostly to Augustine, and he admitted that. And then he brought that into the Christian church, and it's so popular today, and it's heartbreaking because, you know, people are being taught when we need to be winning atheists over, right? We need to be winning the community, the lost community to Christ. They're being told, oh, they're being told that God's a monster. Well, most likely, if you really teach Calvinism the way it really is, if I'm a Calvinist and I'm not hiding what I believe and I go to somebody that's lost and I'm just being honest, I say, you know what? Just want to let you know, Jesus might have died for you. Most likely, you're doomed to hell. But there's a chance you're one of the lucky elect that he arbitrarily chose because he could have just as well damned you. But if he saved you, he sure loves you. But then he doesn't choose one over the other. It's just kind of, it's not based on any, you or anything he foresees in you. So even if he saved you, he could have just as easily damned you forever. So, but he still wants you to love him because he chose to save you and not that guy. But in all the evil things you've done, you need to repent and turn to, to God and repent of those evil things you've done. Even though God predetermined that everything you would do before you ever existed, you would have to do, and there's no way you could have chosen anything the opposite of what you've done, and he's going to burn you forever for doing exactly what he predestined you to do. That's Calvinism. I'm sorry. Now, it gets cloaked in very, well, he has two wills, and he wants to save them, but he, he really doesn't in his decree. He wants to damn them, and it just gets all convoluted. I don't have time to get into all the theology there, but I want to let you know right here, there's, it, we're at a very interesting place in Scripture and this is interesting because this debate that's going on for all these centuries didn't start in the fourth century. It started right here with Paul and the Gnostics. And if you can't confirm and affirm in your heart prayer for everyone, Paul was even willing to give his own life and be cursed. So the unredeemed Israelites, chapter, read Romans 9 and 10. So the unredeemed uh, Israelites could be saved. 
That's love. Where do you think he got that love? The love of God, he says in chapter five, was shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit, amen. That's the love of God. It's, God's not like the, 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 the scribe and the Pharisee who go on the other side and pass by the guy that's dead in the ditch or almost dying or is dying. Jesus gave that parable of the Samaritans, showed his love because they want to know what God's love was like and loving your neighbors yourself. And the good Samaritan went to somebody who was his enemy, right, and saved him. God doesn't pass by the great mass of humanity not wanting to save them. He wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6. But I want to focus the fact that Jesus, for there's one mediator, and what, uh, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one true God. Amen. Now right now, pantheism is popular. God is in everything, which is a lie. Everything is God. That's a lie. The Bible says God is light. In him there's no what? darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. We're God. Well, if we're God, God would be in trouble because then God would be a sinner because we're sinners. Amen? That's a lie. But another lie is, oh, there's many gods in many ways. And right now with Marvel and DC, all the, a lot of the polytheism of the past, these gods are being resurrected like the Norse gods, like Thor, right? New movie coming you know, out recently on Thor and all these other gods, all these false gods. And our, we're in a post-Christian era, guys where young people are being inundated with this idea of many gods and praying to spirits and all these different things. Well, God's word says there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he's the only one mediator because that mediator gave himself as a ransom for all, for everyone. Now today, people want to, they don't want to hear that they're sinners. They don't want to hear that they've blown it. They want to be, hear that they're, they themselves, you know, you, know, you know, discover the superhero in you. We're all great. We're all awesome. And man, in the meantime, do you realize what's going on in, the, in our country? Hundreds of millions of people. What's this, 300 and what, 30, 40 million people in our country? The answers aren't within. In fact, I think there's over 200 million prescriptions to mind-altering drugs because people deal with depression. And oftentimes they're, they're just dealing with, they're not dealing with the root issue. They're trying to mask the issue and, and, and instead of getting right with God. But if you tell them they need to get right with God, people need to repent and get right with God. Not saying it's one, I'm not saying that everybody that has re resorted to something like that isn't helped. But, but the suicide rates go up when you start taking that stuff, not down, you know? It's really, really crazy. But it's interesting to me that we don't realize, we need to realize, we do as believers, but the lost world doesn't realize that they need to get right with God. And there is only one mediator between God and man. But there are, a lot of them are, a lot of them will say they're spiritual now. When you witness people, they'll say, oh, I'm spiritual. Oh, I'm spiritual. And they'll say that, but they don't want to say they're Christian often. I'm spiritual because it sounds cool. And it's kind of a nebulous. It can mean a lot of things. You could be wicked and say you're spiritual. You could be a professing Christian and say you're spiritual. You could wear, shave your head and dance around at the airport in an orange robe and follow a hard Christian and say you're spiritual. You could be a Satanist and say I'm spiritual. So it's kind of a nebulous kind of meaning. And it's important for us to understand that a lot of people are building their way to heaven. That way they can feel good about themselves. 
If I save the whales, it's okay to butcher the babies, but if I save the trees and the whales, I'm a special person. And I'm working my way to heaven. And that's basically every religion is for the most part based on works. It's about you doing enough good things to attain favor from God. And the Christian faith is the only faith that's based on grace and forgiveness through faith in God's Son who shed his blood for us. Amen. Amen. Roby Duke, he's a Christian singer, man. That guy, he had such an amazing voice. I say, Had he died a few years ago. He's on our album, Lead Me to the Rock, singing on one of the, sings, sings on one of the songs. He's just got this amazingly beautiful voice. And he wrote a song. Uh, uh, and one of the lines is in the chorus, there's no stairway to heaven, only a bridge divine. And how true is that, amen? We can't work our way to heaven. There's a bridge divine. The bridge is the mediator, the one mediator between God and man. Here we are on earth, ready for judgment. There's the heavenly kingdom we can't get into on our own. And in between this life and heaven is that chasm that is the depths of hell that we deserve. And Jesus indeed is that bridge divine. In that verse 5, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Greek word for meter there is mesotis, and it means, it speaks of a middle person and an arbitrator between two two parties, uh, one who stands in the middle. uh, And we need someone to stand between us and the Father. Because I mentioned Paul in Timothy says, God dwells in unapproachable light, amen? He's thrice holy. He's perfectly pure. Uh, He's perfectly holy. He's he's pure. He's righteous. And on the other hand, who are we? We're sinners, man. We're lawbreakers. We're rebels, right? We've rebelled against his moral law, and we deserve judgment. But it's interesting because uh, he wants to save us, and he wants to uh, save us, this God. So it's like, how does this God who is a consuming fire who is light, right? But he makes us in his image. And we have some of, we have some, he's communicated his communicable attributes to a degree to us. And we're made in his image, but how does he save us when we are so rebellious? Well, he became the perfect mediator. And he gave himself as a ransom for all. And it's interesting to me because when he was on the cross, what happened? He experienced separation in a way from the Father. I don't believe he ever ceased to be God with the Father, but I believe as the God-man, he suffered the wrath of the Father, no doubt about it, and it was, it was poured out on him. Amen? He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was separated so we could be reconciled. Amen? Uh, he suffered darkness on the cross that we deserve so we could dwell one day in what is now the unapproachable light. He was thirsty on the cross, suffered what the thirst that we deserve forever so we could have free access and be filled with the water of the living water that comes from God's throne. He became poor so we could become rich, the Bible says. I'm not talking about so we be rich in this world, but so we could be rich in his kingdom, which blows out any riches in this world forever and ever. Amen. The Bible says he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
He became broken so you could become whole. Amen? For all these reasons and more, we should be rejoicing in our mediator, Jesus. Amen? I mean, that's why we're here today. Amen? Like, wow, what a wonderful Savior we have. You know, Job, he was like, he needed a mediator. He realized it. He realized that he was in such trouble because he, he, he was distraught because he was the most righteous man on the earth. Compared to God, he was a sinner. But compared to everybody else, he was right, most righteous guy on earth. But he was going through so much turmoil. His life had been turned upside down. He had boils from head to toe. What was going on here? His business, he was incredibly rich, was just destroyed. His family had, you know, was all killed. His wife was the only one left, and she was, you know, just, you know, telling him to curse God and die. And his friends, who would normally probably be in his corner, were doing what? They were accusing him. He called them miserable comforters. And he looked within, he just saw darkness, despair. When he looked to his friends, he found no hope. When we looked toward God, he was confused. What is going on here? And it's interesting because he was in a really tricky situation, if you really think about it. Because on one hand, he was being overly accused for sure because his friends were saying, you must have done something really, really bad for this to happen to you. And he starts to justify himself. You ever, you ever do that? You ever just try, try to defend yourself? Wait a minute. You don't understand where I was coming from or wait, understand the whole story or what have you. I think we've all, I've been in that situation where you're like, you know, no, wait, look at this and that. But guess what? You can overdo it, right? And get overly defensive. I've done that too. I think we all have. But you know what? He's going, he's getting defensive because the accusations are false. He's not going through all those things because God just simply said, if you consider my servant Job, he didn't say, you know what? You need to whap him upside the side of the head because he's just been wicked lately. That's not what happened. He said, there's no one like him. You know, he holds fast his integrity and so forth. And then Satan went after him. He lifted up, God lifted up the hedge, said, just don't kill him. Don't touch him at first. Then he said, he can go further, don't kill him. We all go get tested. Consider my servant Job. That's New Testament doctrine, James 5. But now he's defending himself and he goes too far. Because now he's trying to justify himself before God. Like, how could God do this to me? And he wasn't seeing the hand of Satan. He wasn't seeing the big picture. He wasn't seeing God's plan that God was going to bless him twice as much in the end. So he begins to say some things that he shouldn't have said. Now, his friends had sinned, and the Bible says basically he hadn't, you know. But he does have to retract some of his words, you know. He didn't sin in respect to cursing God and committing suicide, you know, but he still, he wasn't absolutely perfect in his, if you go ahead and read through it, you'll see he, he struggles with some of, the, some of his, his, his uh, attitude because he's like, what's going on? So on one hand, he's trying to justify himself and yeah, and he's right. These things weren't happening. I didn't do anything that caused these things, but then he's justified himself too much. He's saying, I wish I could talk to God, explain myself to him, you know? as though he's perfectly righteous before God in some way. And that wasn't true either, although he acknowledges that he wasn't perfect. So it's interesting, in chapter 9, in chapter 9, go, ahead, go to Job chapter 9, and, uh, and he's responding to Bildad here. And he, and he realizes he needs a mediator, guys. He needs someone to step in and help him because he feels like God's just going to torch him. And in chapter 9, in response to Bildad, it says, Then Job, verse 1, responded, verse 2, In truth, I know that this is, uh, this is so, but how can a person 
be in the right with God. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. And by the way, that word dispute in the Hebrew, is, in the Hebrew it's a technical term, which means go to court, dispute at court. He's saying, hey, if I had to face God in court, and he's basically saying, if I had to face God in court, he goes, I, I know I'm not wrong. I know I don't deserve all this. I know you guys are making a bad connection here. But he says, but then again, I know also that if I took this to court and I went against God in court, if there were a thousand charges he brought against, with, against, against me, he'd win on every count. I don't stand a chance. Pretty heavy, huh? <laughs> it's pretty heavy, you know? Uh, it's, it's interesting. And this is good, though, because in this sense, that he recognizes that ultimately we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the book of Psalms, it says, there is no one who does good, not even one, quoted in Romans 3 as well, in Romans 3.10. Isaiah 53.6 says, we have all uh, rebelled against God's commands. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? So it's interesting. Job's like, someone needs to bridge the gap. I mean, I need help. In fact, jump down to verses 32 and 33 in chapter 9. Or just look at verse 33. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Right? Now, it's interesting because he, wants an, he wishes there was an umpire that could resolve this problem between him and God. Like he's like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on here. And then in verse 32, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. And there wasn't at that time, was there? The NIV says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. The literal standard version says, if there were a mediator between us, he placed his hand on both of us. He wishes there was a mediator to help him that could stand in between him and Father God. And what does a mediator do, you guys? What does a mediator do? Mediator uh, typically will represent both parties. And if you have a good mediator, there's no perfect mediator but Jesus, he would represent both parties with perfect knowledge in a perfect way. And therefore, the uh, perfect mediator would have total and absolute knowledge of both parties. And typically, a mediator is accepted by both parties. Uh, and the objective of the mediator uh, through history has been to bring peace between two parties. And Job's realizing he cannot accomplish that on his own. And he wishes there was a mediator that would lay his hand on the eternal God, which Job couldn't, and would lay his hand on, him, on Job and bring them together. He so desires that. Now he gets glimpses of light. This is inspired by God, by the way. God even knows how we'll respond to things and puts in situations in the right people at the right time and Job's responding. And I believe he's having thoughts that are hints from 
by the Holy Spirit to him because he'll say things like, my what? Guys, remember that famous saying? My Redeemer what? My Redeemer lives, amen? And though my flesh, he's, though he dies, he says, he will see him in his flesh. He'll see God. Wait a minute. He can't even get close to God. Thousand charges. My Redeemer lives. And I know, he says, after I die, I'll see God with my eyes in the flesh. Resurrection, by the way, there too. It's heavy, man. Job is full of, and it's the oldest book perhaps in the Bible. Many scholars believe it's older than Genesis. It's hard to know for sure. We can't know for sure. That it was written possibly before Genesis was written by Moses. And it's interesting because Job is not an Israelite. He, he doesn't talk about the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't talk about the temple. He doesn't talk about, he's not, he's a, he's, he's you know, he's a pagan who, who was a pagan who came to God. And it shows you that God doesn't just, isn't just saving Jews. Even back then, he was saving people that didn't, that, that, that were not Jews. And he even rose up prophets to speak to say, for instance, the wicked Ninevites, right? And other, God always had a plan through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring his Messiah, who'd be light to all the nations, amen? That's the Lord's end game, is that the gospel would spread through the Jews to the rest of the nations. But it's interesting Jesus fulfilled his role perfectly as the perfect mediator. You ever see those kind of, I, I, sometimes I get a kick out of those like uh, videos, you know, or those websites or those storylines where they just have a theme, you know. One of my favorites is like the dumbest criminals. I just shared some of that at the men's retreat. Those, they just kind of, because it shows the folly of crime, you know. And the criminals that think they're so smart actually get it, in, if not now, in the end. But there's another list of uh, one job to do. You ever see that one? You just have one job to do, and you don't do it right, you know? And uh, I saw a list that was like 50 or 60 different things, and there's different websites and things that do that one job to do. And it's kind of funny. It's like you got one job to do. And number one was the College of Architecture right? And there's a big building that says College of, Arch it's College of Architecture and Planning. So it's about College of Architecture and Planning. And you look at the building and it says College of Architecture and Planning because the C, they didn't put on the, they forgot, they started with the O. They said that and then they put the C on the other side of the building. So, you know, you look at the building, you read this, but then you look over here and there's the C. They said, oh, we better put the C on there. And it's called the College of Architecture and Planning, you know? And it's like, that's not doing your job right, right? And another one I thought was funny is uh, it shows this flooded street and flooded park. It's all together. And there's this big drain, but the drain's higher than everything else. And if they would just drop the drain down a few inches, there's no flood. Just one job to do when you get it wrong. Or the guys, you know, that paved the streets, the shovels, you know, government, you know, government workers, you ever see that when you drive by and you see the workers and they're, they're, they're just the, the professional shovel holder guys? They just stand there with the shovel. Yeah, I'm like, can't you just get a shovel holder, man? Or is that guy working, you know? A lot of those guys work, I know. If you're in that industry, I know. I'm just playing with you. But some of those guys, not so much, you know? Anyway, uh, but there's just a shovel. You can see it and they pave right over it and it's sticking out of the ground. I mean, laying on the ground. It's a shovel. Do your job right, you know? Just one job to do. Or I love the one, I saw the one, and there's a stop sign. 
And then you know how it says stop on the ground too? Really big. And stop spelled right, but then stop here when you look at the ground, it's big. S-O-P-T. Sopped. One job to do, you know? So uh, and sometimes it's based on corruption, right? You know, people just don't do their job right because, and that's millions of times over. I remember Josiah, we, went to, we did a mission trip to Mexico to help Jonathan, you know, and Josiah, my son, were driving back, and he was in a different vehicle. And uh, the guy came up, and, you know, when you're waiting in line to go over the border, you got to wait a long time because you're doing it, like, legally, right? And somebody offers him this big, beautiful lion blanket. And Josiah's like, wow. And he wants it. But Josiah, he's pretty frugal, you know? And he's like going back and forth with the guy. And the guy he wants trying to get the guy down. The guy's like, nope, not going to budge that far down. Josiah's I'm not going to take it then. Back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the guy leaves. Well, just before Josiah, they go over the border. The guy comes back. He goes, okay, your price. Big old beautiful lion blanket, you know. Shoves it, gives it to Josiah. It's all big and, you know, folded up. And Josiah's oh, wow, okay, great. Gives him money. Gets home, he unravels his big lion jacket or, or, or blanket, and it's just this big dog puppy, you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, he got ripped off, you know, because, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't think it was the same blanket. It was, it was a different blanket for sure, and it wasn't as big, you know. So, but guess what, man? Everybody fails in one way or another, you know. We all, we're, none of us are close to perfect at our job. We try, you know, hopefully a lot of us do. But Jesus, man, he had one job to do. Several things within that main one job. And he does thousands of things a day, okay? So, but I'm saying one main thing to do. Well, he had to become a man. He did it perfectly. He had to live a perfect life. So he did far more than one thing. But I'm talking about redemption, he had to live a perfect life. He did it. He was tempted everywhere like us, yet without sin. He had to go to the cross and take the penalty that you and I deserve upon himself. And he did. He did it perfectly. And he's the only one that could do it perfectly. I've told you that God could give us even more blessings because he's so good, but he doesn't because it would ruin us. How many, if you had more taste buds, you'd be even more trouble with food. If you even had better taste buds, that worked even better. I would be in more trouble. I'm like, now I'm like on the carnivore deal, you know. I like it because I can eat certain things, but can't eat certain things. And, uh, but people have a struggle with their sex drives. A lot of problems out there, right? People have a tr problems with uh, things. He can make things more plentiful and more beautiful and stuff, and you'd forget about God even sooner, be even more tempted. So God's in this situation where he wants to really bless us. But Jesus, God has everything, yet guess what? He's so radical. He says, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to deny myself and die for the ones that hate me because I want to save them because my nature is love. He's all-powerful, but he's also all-loving. Omni... <laughs> He's omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's also omnibenevolent. He's also all-loving. Man, so praise God, we have this one mediator. It says in Hebrews 4.15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses or infirmities, but was in all points tempted like 
as we are yet without sin. You see, as the one mediator, he is God and man. See, understand, how is he the mediator? How could he put the hand on, on his hand on God and another hand on us and bring us together? Well, he had to become a man because the first Adam represented us and he blew it, amen? amen. And we are all stained with sin. Amen? Because of original sin. Well, he's the second Adam who came to save us from the work of the first Adam and give his life in our place. Amen? So he became a man. And it said he became flesh and blood like us to deliver us from the power of Satan and the fear of death that we had all our lives. So he becomes a man. Yet if you read it, 1 Timothy 3.16, he's also God. 1 Timothy 3.16. Make sure I got my verse right. Thereabouts, yeah. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Okay? And that King James is interesting here because it declares him as God right there. But it just talks about the household of God in verse 15. He's the latest subject there. And great is the mystery of godliness who... Uh, he was what? Revealed in the flesh. God became a man. He was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. Amen. Amen. So we emphasize him becoming a man. But Paul also, a little bit later, emphasized him also going back up to the Father. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he didn't only die for our sins. Verse 6, right after it says, One meeting between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid for our sins, the things that condemned us. So he didn't just become a man as the God-man, because understand this, no man can save you. The Bible says no man can redeem his brother for the soul is costly, amen? You can't, no, no man can save you. You can't save me, I can't save you. But God could save us. But the debt that had to be paid, how could God save us? If he became a man and represented us to the Father by paying our debt, amen? And then Jesus continues to mediate for us as he intercedes and prays for you. Jesus prays for you at the right hand of the Father. You guys, we need to be more selfless. The Bible says, let this mind be in you or this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he's in the very form or nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He could have, but he let go and he became a man and died a death for us. And it says, even the death on the cross, Amen. So we're supposed to have that attitude in us. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that attitude. A lot of professing Christians don't deny themselves. But this is God who deserves everything, who never did anything wrong and suffers more than all of us because he wants to save us. He tells us that's the way we should be living. That, but a lot of times people only do things when they're convenient. Oh yeah, I did this for this person. Or, but they don't do things when they're inconvenient. How many of you are like, man, I wish I could serve more. I want to serve the Lord more. Well, guess what? On Sunday, there's some people that are teaching five times a week and still doing children's church, but they can't do it all. 
and, or on Wednesday, you know. You can get on the rotation, or on Sunday, you can get on the rotation for, you know, teach the children, spend time with the toddlers, and just once, and on a rotation even. That's one way you can bless people. That blesses the brothers and sisters in Christ. That blesses the community when people bring in their kids from outside the community or open up their hearts to God. They've got good care because you're praying for their kids and you're there. There's all kinds of ways we can serve. If you want to help in that way, contact Yasmin, okay? Because, you know, I know she could use help from time to time. But that would be a great way to serve, guys. You know? Hebrews 8, 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also, listen to this. Jesus has a more excellent ministry because he, has also, he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, amen? Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Man, he is our mediator. So Job asked the question in verse 2 of chapter 9, but how can a person be right with God? If there's a thousand charges against me, and I go to court with him, I come out of there a zero for a thousand. How could I be right with God? That's a good question. But Job so started looking for a mediator. That's a first step. That's good. Because you look to your friends, and they ain't gonna, they're not going to save you, man. You look to the, the courts of the world, they're not going to save you, man. You look to your spouse. Job's spouse couldn't save him. Couldn't look inward. Couldn't look to his finances. Could only look for that mediator. Amen? Amen? And he says, how could one be righteous before God? Well, Job, you're on to something, man, through your mediator. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And his name will be called the Lord our righteousness. He's going to bring the branch. He's going to bring the Savior who's going to be our righteousness. That's how we could be right with God because he will be our righteousness. He will die for our sins. Amen? Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God from God and righteousness. Christ isn't just the wisdom of God, the word made flesh. He's also our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had known no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we died, when Christ died, we died with him on the cross. He represented us. And in a real sense, you died. When you identified with him, you accepted his death. But when he rose from the dead, man, our lives are now in him, amen? And now we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. As Paul said in Philippians chapter three, that he would not put his trust in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness that comes through faith, through Christ, amen? We don't put our faith in the righteousness that comes through the law or our own righteousness, but the faith that's, but the righteousness that's found in Christ Jesus because we are part of his body, and he's declared righteous, amen? And by virtue of us being in him, we are treated with pure grace. Because even though we still deserve wrath because of what we are, because we're in him, he doesn't treat us the way we should be treated, amen?
we're given forgiveness. And that's why Jesus is the only way. Because he's the only one who could save us. Jesus said, so there's not three, four, 10, 15 ways. There's only one way. The, the singer Sheryl Crow, very popular singer through the years, New York told New York Post in an interview, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all those that were enlightened. I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm a Christian, a strict Christian. I'm not sure what I believe in heaven. So she really doesn't have a clue, you know. Just trying to cover her bases in case there's a heaven. I believe in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad. But Jesus doesn't, Muhammad's a liar, okay? Buddha left, to, he forsook his wife and his little kid. He said, see you later, I'm gonna go be enlightened. Never to be seen again by them. Not a real good role model. Muhammad was a racist, anti-black. Called black people horrible names I won't even repeat. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one that gave him his, could give his life for you. And in fact, remember in Revelation chapter 5, John begins to weep because nobody's able to open this, loose the, loose the scroll from its seven seals and the angel says, stop weeping. There's one who's overcome to loose the seals, amen, and open the scroll. There's one who's found worthy because John scans heaven and earth and hell under the earth and no one was found worthy, but he says, stop crying. And Jesus stood forth and he saw the lion of the tribe of Judah who looked like a lamb that had been slain. And they sing a new song because he gave his blood to ransom, to save the nations. Amen? That's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, you must be what? You can't say, oh, I can just go to heaven anyway. No, Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And John 3, 7, he says, do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. John 3, 14, a little bit later, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He had to be lifted up. That's the only way we can be saved. That's why he's the only way. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 17, he didn't send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. John 3, 18, listen to this. He who believes in him, he who believes in Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's why he's the only way to be saved. In John chapter 10, he said in verses 7 through 10, he said, I am the door, not a door. I'm the door. Says if you go up some other way, you're the same as a thief and a robber. In John 14, 1 through 3, he said to the disciples, you know, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If we're not so, I would have told you this. He goes, but I go to prepare a place for you that where you may be, where I, where I am, you may be also. And then 14, 6, he said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. The way, not a way. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I was talking to a Hindu school teacher visiting the church someone brought. And he stayed after the service and we talked. And he didn't like the idea. He said, oh, Jesus is a great man, but I don't like the idea that he's the only way. We had a good discussion. I told him why he's the only way. He's the only one that paid for your sins. He said, I refuse to believe that. I want, you know, I go. And he goes, and he wanted to talk further. I go, I'd love to talk further. He goes, let me have your phone number. I go call any number. There's several ways. And he, he didn't laugh like you guys did. 
He didn't find it so amusing. And then I gave him my cell number. He called me back on my home number. I refused to answer on my home number. I knew the game he was playing. I'm like, nope, I'm going to see this through. He wants to talk to me, it's going to be through my cell number. You know, so uh, I had a lady, I was doing, I used to be a tile setter, you know, I was a jack of many trades, but master of none, and, uh, but I was a tile setter for some time, and I'm setting tile in a lady's house here in Simi, and a lot of tile, and she's watching me the whole time, and her dog was watching me, she had one of those huge, one of those dogs, those sheep, not, not sheep dogs, they're real super smart, uh, man, no, mastiffs aren't smart, are they? <laughs> Some masters are smart. The Italian masters are smart. Joe Piro got one. They got to be smart. No, it's, uh, no, they're really, the, the border collie, but it was huge. They had these blue eyes and would just stare at me. Just watch me like a, like he better be putting them towels straight. I'm always thinking like, whoa. Anyway, but she starts, and she was telling me the craziest stories. She's reading the Inquirer because she's like, did you see this story in the Inquirer about these giant catfish that are in the, in this, and they're, they're hiding behind bushes and attacking people? I'm like, no, true story, you know? And I'm like, no, I didn't read that, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, man, this lady's telling me crazy stories. It's time for me to witness to her. So I started telling about Jesus. And she got all offended and all bent out of shape because I said, he's the only way. He gave his life for you. You know, it's a fact. It's Jesus died. He, he's a historical person. He's pr- prophesied and all these things. And she said, I don't want to have this discussion. I'm very offended that you just say there's just one way. You're telling me I needed Jesus. I'm like, I didn't say it, but I'm like, well, you're telling me about being chased by giant catfish, you know? So, and then I said, well, yeah, I just want to ask you. I go, would it be unloving if your next door neighbor, her house is on fire, and as I'm leaving here, I don't know if I said as I'm leaving here or as I arrived or walked by, but then I see that happen in the house, and I scream at the lady, your house is on fire, you need to get out. Would that be unloving? And she thought about it. And she said, I get your point. Like, I'm telling you this because I care about you. You know, I'm commanded by the Lord to preach this gospel to you. And someone tells you, well, you know, that's just, you know, so, you know, exclusive that there's just one way. That's mean of God. Why does he make many ways? You know, what if you're, you're, you're a firefighter and there is a high-rise apartment building engulfed in flames that surround everywhere, except there's this ladder. The fireman goes up, and he gets through, goes through the window, and he spares you, grabs you, and says, I'm taking you down. We've got safe passage just through this, down this ladder. Otherwise, this whole thing's going down. Does the person say, that's mean of you, just to say there's one way? Can't believe you're doing that and being like that. What? We have to get out of here. There is one way, but... This fireman is risking his life to save you. That's not mean. That's loving, isn't it? Well, Jesus didn't risk his life. He gave his life. Amen? There's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, and he is so awesome. So, and that, by the way, you could use those examples. Uh, on, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if possible, in chapter 26, verse 39, let this what? Cup passed from me, amen? Was it possible? Could we still be saved if he didn't drink the cup of wrath? No. In fact, Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels and they would come and rescue me. But thank God he didn't choose to do that, amen? In Acts 4.12, it says, Peter says this, and there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? It's only one name. The name is Jesus. And that's why Paul said in Acts chapter, or Galatians 3, 22 and 23, for if, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. God couldn't save us by giving us some law. God gave his perfect law that represents who he is and it showed that we're failures, amen? We couldn't save by, be saved by being good enough. His law just reveals that we're sinners and the more we look at his law and the longer we live, the more wicked we see that we are. But the Bible says in Galatians 3.10 that whoever does not continue in all the law is under a curse, amen? But it says in 3.13, curse is everyone who hangs upon a tree, the law says, and Jesus became a curse for us. He suffered the curse in our place. We can reject him, but then we would be cursed. Hebrews 2.3 says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Because there's no other way. So if you reject Jesus, say, well, I'm going to go for reincarnation. I'm going to start following Buddha. I'm going to become a Muslim. I'm going to become a New Ager. Well, the Bible says, how we shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen. And Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 says, man, if you reject Jesus, he says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for a fire indignation which will consume the adversaries of God. Amen. You have no salvation outside of Jesus. Just eternal judgment. That's all you have is eternal judgment. That's all that would be left for you. Now, Roman Catholicism teaches that there is more than one mediator. Mormons teach that, that you need Joseph Smith, his consent. That you need Mary in Catholicism, that she prays for you. You should go to her too. She'll help you. And... I could go late right now. I'm already a minute or two late and go in all that, but I think maybe we'll have a part two of this because I want to go into what the different religions and the different popular groups that claim to be Christian are teaching and how, want to do a little more on this? One mediator between God and man, we'll have a part two on it. Can we all please stand?